Thank you, Anton and worship team. Isn't it a great day? It's a new day. It's a new season. It's a new chapter. We rejoice. We give all the glory to God. Um, just a couple of uh, things before we welcome Pastor Brian and pray for him. Um, I just want to say, the sister who prayed, prayed uh, for cancer that has been rebuked. And when I was singing the words of that song, um, as he stands in victory, since curse has been gone, is lost. Sickness's curse is gone. And this week we had a great praise report from Brother Rochelle that his numbers are the lowest they've ever been. We believe cancer is rebuked. We stand in glory. We thank God for that. And we give God the glory. I, that was, as, as much as I'm excited about this Sunday, that made my week. And I know there are many others here who have been battling cancer. Pray that prayer. All sickness, you know, some have to battle through it. Some have lost that battle. But for those of you, we're praying that the Lord will rebuke disease and cancer, any sickness, and we rejoice when that does happen. This is the Lord, the Lord, day the Lord has made, and we're just excited uh, to welcome Pastor Brian. The way this is all handled, we're not going to go through all of it. We talked about it two weeks ago, but it's just such an amazing miracle. When you are in the center of God's will, God allow, allows miracles to happen, and we just don't understand. We'll get to eternity, and we understand why the Lord allows these things to happen. I grew up in a country 10,000 miles away, and I couldn't imagine that I'd be spending the bulk of my life in Mountain View. That's a miracle. Around many of you who are from different ethnic backgrounds, how did the Lord pick somebody from Bangalore and situate them next to somebody here in Mountain View? Many of you are from so many different ethnicities, whether it's Indian, whether it's African American, whether it's Caucasian, whether it's Asian American, whether it's Latino, and I probably missed a few others. But that's what this body of Christ is, because that's what we're going to see when we get to heaven. And when we rejoice here on earth, just like, the, uh, just like Paul said, Greek and Jew and barbarian Scythian, we get a picture of what it's like to be in heaven. Um, I, um, as we made this announcement, I just wanted to, to just let you know that we've been surrounded with a lot of encouragement from a number of different pastors in the Bay Area who have been just with us in prayer. Um, it was just encouraging to hear some of them over this week. I thought I'd read a few of them, uh, those emails that came in, uh, just encouraging everyone in an abundant life to stay the course, to be faithful. Uh, Gary Gardini, as you know, he's pastor of PCC uh, in Redwood City. He said, brother, I rejoice at the faithfulness of abundant life body and the news of Brian coming to ALCF. Uh, I was on staff with Krampus Crusade, and his father's a hero of mine. We love you, Brian, but it sounds like a lot of people love your dad, too. Okay? Uh, and if there's anything I can do to be of help, to welcome him to the Bay Area, uh, I'd love to. John Ardberg uh, from Menlo Prez, Menlo Church now. This is such wonderful news. I'm so glad to hear it. His wife, Nancy Ardberg, that runs... Um, um, uh, CBC now said, I'm looking forward to getting to know uh, Brian better. Uh, Pastor Paul Shepherd sent us a note saying, I want everyone to know I'm a friend of, of ALCF and pray God's blessings on the church. Steve Zeisler and Paul Taylor from, uh, P- from PBC across the, church, uh, across the Middlefield Road said, this is just really exciting news. And we've been praying for the last few years. Uh, Mark Mitchell, you know, he's preached here a number of times, also sent his greetings. So we rejoice that we have been a church that is, as we sang in that song, founded on the rock. On Christ the rock we stand. And the Lord has surrounded us with others who have been able to encourage us during this season. And I just have just three things I want to encourage every one of you as we begin this new day, this new season, this new chapter. Number one, how many of you have at least four friends in your life? Okay, come on, that should be every one of you. If you don't have a friend, come and talk to me afterwards. I'll be your friend. If you have three and you're missing number four, come talk to me afterwards. Okay, I'll be your friend. You at least have four. The reason I picked four was there's a seat in front of you, north, behind you, south, east, and west that's empty. And the Lord is doing a work in this Bay Area of 10 million people, I believe, that there's somebody that you can invite, uh, especially during this series, and I'd encourage you to do it. Whether it's Mountain View, Sunnyvale, Palo Alto, San Jose, up north, there's somebody. I've picked a few in my own workplace that I believe need to hear the gospel. And I think this is the season where the Lord's going to bring a new remnant before he comes back. And I believe that that's what we are going to be called to do. I'd encourage you, invite your friends. Secondly, 
some of us may have carried baggage from the past. Okay, I have a verse for all of us as we think about this. Philippians 3 verse 13. Forget what lies behind and reach forward to what lies ahead. Towards the goal. What's the goal? The prize of the upward calling of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're new and you don't know what I mean by baggage, that's great. That's awesome. We welcome you. And there's going to be many, many new that come in here. But if you have baggage from the past, past brothers and sisters, just remember that verse. We'll leave it right behind us and do the third thing, which is this church has always been about that upward call of the prize of Jesus Christ. We welcome Pastor Brian, but he is going to point us to the cross. This church is not about one person. It's about the cross. It's about the cross of Jesus Christ. And I just love our brother's humility and the way in which he's going to point us to Jesus. So with that, I would like all of you, I know many of you wanted to stand up and welcome him. You get a chance now to do that. Let's stand up in the name of the Lord and welcome Pastor Brian and ask the elders to also come up as we pray with him. Brother Rocky, if you would pray as we lay hands on Brother Brian, all the elders come up. Let us all pray. Heavenly Father, again, giving you glory and honor and praise. We want to thank you because this congregation, Lord, you have hemmed us from behind and you have pressed us on towards the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. And as we had have as we have tarried and toiled with the snares that the enemy may put in front of us, Lord, you said, continue to look forward to the cross because if we humble ourselves before your mighty hand, Lord, that you will bring us to fruition to doing your kingdom work, Lord. So we thank you for this brother that you brought before us, Lord. We, many of us, all of us have been on our knees for days, weeks, months, even years waiting for you to do your work, Lord. And you've brought this brother to us, O Heavenly Father. We pray, O Heavenly Father, that like Elisha said, give a double blessing that you put on Elijah to this brother. He's already anointed, Lord, but give him more anointing and let us come beside him, Lord, and not let him do the work. Let us all pitch in to press on, Lord, to do what you have done, have put out for this particular congregation, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you have brought him with humility, Lord. But we pray, O Heavenly Father, and we know what the enemy can do because we've seen the bait of Satan, Lord. We pray for the fact that we can crush the head of the servant. And tell the serpent, Lord, that you have no room in the life of this brother. No room in the life of this church. Because we know, Heavenly Father, that you will supply all of our needs according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So bring this brother's heart even closer to you than it already is. And bring us all even closer to you, Lord. Protect him. Protect his family, Lord. Let us be a hedge of protection around him. Let us all gather around him and help him do your work, O Heavenly Father. We thank you for him, and we continue to pray, O Heavenly Father, that we will give you all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Thank you, brother. Well, thank you, brothers. I uh, feel like too much has been made of me. So let's go to Revelation chapter 2 as we begin our time of study in God's Word. As you're going there, I do want to read you something that um, my prayer partner, my wife, sent me this morning. She uh, texted me and she said, praying for you this morning as today marks our future in California. I pray the Lord's tangible presence at Abundant Life and that the Lord speak mightily through you straight into the hearts of the congregation. I'm excited to see all that God has for us in this next season of ministry. I love you. I cannot wait for you to meet my girl. Amen. She's the Jerry in my curl. The sugar in my Kool-Aid. I tell you, I love, 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 love her. Well, I don't know you all too well, and you don't know me that well. 
But for most of us in this room, there's one person we know well. His name is Jesus. So I was just racking my brain and I'm going, you know, so much of pastoral preaching is knowing the sheep and being able to hear from the Lord as to what those sheep need right now because you just walk with them. Um, But I don't know you that well. So I'm like, Lord, where do I begin? And I just sense the Lord saying, we'll begin with Jesus. So if you don't have a problem with that, um, you know, the next several weeks, that's what we're going to do. I want to start a series this morning called First Things First. Looking at the preeminence and priority that Jesus Christ is to play in our lives. And to help us with that, I want us to go to Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. By the way, um, I, I typically preach out of the English Standard Version. I don't know if that's typical for this church or whatever, uh, but that's the translation that I choose. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, verse 6, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Finally, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The word of the Lord. Amen. Not too long ago, a friend of our family took a trip to China. He was excited about this trip. He was looking forward to it. He was going to go there and see some sites, work a little business in at the same time. And uh, the day of the trip came, he was living in Los Angeles, and uh, the day of the trip came and he found himself just kind of running around town, doing some last minute errands, getting some last minute items that he needed for the trip. He checks his watch and realizes that he's running perilously close to missing his flight. He rushes home, uh, grabs his stuff, throws it in the car, kisses his wife and kids goodbye, speeds down the 105 freeway, um, pulls up there at the airport, uh, runs through all the security checkpoints, um, gets onto the plane, puts his bag into the overhead compartment, sits down, buckles in, and as soon as that happens, he began to have this nauseating sense that he had forgotten something pretty important. Ever happened? Has that ever happened to you? But he couldn't put his finger on it. He's just thinking, I've, I've forgotten something as the plane is slowly taxiing down the runway, but he can't figure out what it is. Finally, they, they ascend into the heavens, and, and finally, at about 35,000 feet, somewhere over the Atlantic, it hits him what it is he forgot, and the very thought of him, the very thought of it made him double over in nauseous pain. See, in his hurry to make his flight, He had pulled up curbside at LAX, jumped out his car, grabbed his bags, left the car running, and here he is on his flight, 35,000 feet over the Pacific, and Lord knows what had happened to his car. In his hurry to do something good, make it to China, He had neglected to take care of first things first, his car. I find that to be a fitting parable for for much of life. One of the great temptations of life is to trade in what is essential for what is good. One of the great temptations that all of us have in life, it is the temptation to neglect first things first. 
Every day in our lives is a struggle to try to figure out what are our priorities and to make sure that we are navigated not by the tyranny of the urgent, but to be navigated by the North Star of priority. If I can just be honest with you, um, you just need to know this about me. Sometimes as a pastor, I, 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 I may be a little bit too much vulnerable, but I'd, I'd rather do that. I kind of like knocking myself off the pedestal from time to time. I, I just want you to just pull you into my own struggle, into our own home. I, I, I kind of have this struggle, even as a parent, neglecting first things first, exchanging uh, essential things for good things. You know, I can get so caught up in the rat race of parenting. I got a 14-year-old about to turn 15. By the way, he's excited to leave New York where we don't own a car, move to California. His first thing to me was, ooh, I can drive now. So he's really excited. But um, in my struggle, one of my struggles as a parent is, is, is to so prioritize providing, which is a good thing, that I neglect the greater thing of actually spending time with my kids. I, I, I can be so caught up in the rat race of making sure there's money in the bank accounts and bills are paid and working, 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 working that I fail to see I've got a tight window of time to shape these crumb snatchers. And I can get, is work a good thing? Yes. But may I never get so caught up in the good thing that I neglect the greater thing of connecting with my kids. Or even with my own wife. For those of us who are married, we understand, um, as the commercial says, life comes at you fast. And here, Corey and I, we've been married coming up on 17 years, and the honeymoon period ended, and um, life comes at you fast, and you're in this rat race to kind of pay bills, and, you know, parenting two teenagers, an 11-year-old, and if you're not careful, you can just kind of have one of those days where you're just trying, kind of caught up in the rat race of, of marriage, and just making sure the business of marriage is handled, you're not really communicating, you kind of fall into bed with one another, tired, and then next day more of the same, and next day more of the same, and days to turn into weeks, weeks turn into months, months turn into years. You wake up one day and you realize, where's the passion? Where's the romance? Where's the love? The great temptation of life is to neglect first things first. This was the problem with the church at Ephesus. I can almost hear Jesus clapping. I know your work, hard work in church. We're going to learn just a few moments. Faithful church, discerning church. Wonderful. It's good stuff. He says, I got a problem though. Your priorities are out of whack. I'm not first. And this is the temptation to the Christian life. It's the temptation to not keep Jesus first. I'm going to preach this morning about first things first. But before we go any further, will you pray with me? Father, I do pray my role as a pastor is not to change anybody. I can't even change myself. It's the work of you and your son Jesus and the sweet Holy Spirit. He's the one who changes. So I stand this morning much like uh, the parable of the sower and the seed in Matthew chapter 13. My role as pastor is to just scatter the seed of your word. And I pray, Lord God, that that seed would fall on good ground. That it would take root. That it would produce a harvest. I pray for that person who doesn't know Jesus. I do pray that Jesus would be so clearly proclaimed, Lord God, and that your spirit would just be so tangible, even at this moment, that you would draw people who don't know you from death to life. And I pray, Lord God, for those of us who do know you, but our priorities are a little screwed up right now, that you would give us a spiritual wheel alignment. That you, Lord God, would be first. It's to that, that end that I'm available to you. Bless, I do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Give me just a few moments. I promise you I'm coming to your neighborhood. In fact, I'm going to probably put my feet up on the coffee table of your home this morning. It's going to get probably a little uh, uncomfortable. That's okay. You ain't got to say amen. Just say ouch. But before we get there, let me just frame the context here. Our passage is the first of seven letters that Jesus himself 
gives to seven different churches. We understand right off the bat in verse 1 that Jesus is addressing the church at Ephesus. Most scholars agree that, that it's no coincidence that Ephesus is first. Ephesus is known as kind of like the New York City of its day. It was a church that was, it was a city rather, that was seen as being preeminent. It was the city to live in. It was located strategically at a, at a harbor. It was the right place for business people to come and to do trade and commerce. Man, if you were a citizen of Ephesus, you, you lived in prime real estate. In fact, one scholar says that Ephesus was the light of Asia. It's modern-day Turkey, but it's kind of known as ancient Asia. This is Ephesus. Because of that, it's no secret in Acts chapter 19, if you want more background on the church at Ephesus, go to Acts chapter 19. Don't have time to take you there right now. But Paul comes in Acts chapter 19, and he comes to the city of Ephesus. In fact, you should know this. Of all the cities that Paul ever planted a church in, he spends the longest in the city of Ephesus. He's there for three years. Hang in there with me. I promise you I'm coming to your neighborhood. He hangs out there for three years and he, he plants this church. In fact, I, I would just submit to you that you can't even understand most of your New Testament without understanding Ephesus. Most of the books in the New Testament, I should say many of them, are either written to the church at Ephesus or leaders in Ephesus or are written from Ephesus. Paul comes to Ephesus. He understands this is a strategic city. I want to plant a church here because if I can reach people in Ephesus, it will position us for global impact. Uh, by the way, this wasn't at the top of my list, but as my wife and I began praying about coming here, I just want you to understand the strategic place in which we are living. And Lord have mercy, if the gospel can get put out here in the Bay Area, the global positioning we have to influence the world. God has positioned us in such a right place. So this is Ephesus. This is where Paul comes. He plants the church. First century historian Josephus tells us the church begins to flourish. It is a hub of Christian missionary activity. Now, 40 years later, the church at Ephesus, already having received a letter from Paul, now they get a letter from Jesus. You know you a bad church when Paul writes you and now Jesus writes you. And look at what Jesus says. To the angel of the church in Ephesus... Angel is the Greek word angelos. It simply means messenger. I agree with John MacArthur and other scholars. What's in view here is it relates to the angel. Angels are messengers. Scholars tell us that this angel represents the leader or the pastor of the church. He is addressing the pastor of the church. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now this is curious language. What are the seven stars? What are the seven golden lampstands? You don't need to spend a day in seminary to figure this out. Just go to Revelation chapter 1 verse 20. And in Revelation chapter 1 verse 20, it breaks it down for us. It says in verse 20 of Revelation chapter 1, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars, here it is, are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now he says in verse 1 of our text, he says, the words of him who holds the seven stars, that is, the seven angels, the seven leaders, he says, I hold you in my right hand. The right hand is the hand of power and blessing, he says, in so many words, I'm in control. But not only that, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The seven golden lampstands are the churches. The idea of him walking among them, it is not him playing some security guard in which he's trying to point out the faults that he sees. No, he's walking among them as a caring shepherd overseeing his flock. Put it all together at your neighborhood. He says to this church, I hold you in my right hand. I am in control. He says to this church, I am walking among you, which means I care. Abundant Life, I'm here to tell you that the same God that was in control of the church of Ephesus and cared for the church of Ephesus is the same God in the 21st century who is in control of this church and who cares for this church. 
I'm not saying this here to puff myself up with the very fact that God would take you through what you've been going through and would give you a pastor and entrust you with caring elders who shepherd the flock and feed you and nurture you from the Word of God tells us that God is in control of this church. That God cares for this church. He now goes on to give them words of comfort. He says in verse 2, I know your works. The Greek word for know, it simply means a knowledge that comes from observance. It's like he's saying, I've been checking you out. I've been watching you. Isn't that humbling to think that here is Jesus peering over the balcony of heaven, checking out his church, and listen to what he says. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. I don't have time to go through it all, but what he's saying here is he gives a list of nine things that they're doing well. I'm not going to click through the list, but these nine things can be summarized in three statements. He says, first of all, I know your works, your toil. The idea behind the word toil, it means to labor to the point of exhaustion. What is he saying here is? He's saying here is you are a hard-working church. Jesus is clapping. Man, I've been checking you out, and you are a hard-working church. We don't have to twist your arm to volunteer. Something happens, you show up, you serve, you see the need, you fill the need. I was talking to a one, a young, one young lady in the back here uh, right before service, and she's telling me uh, that she only gets to come in service once a month because the other three uh, Sundays a month, she's back there serving our kids. Hard-working These are people who are working really hard. And Jesus said, I applaud you. I know your toil. Amen. Not only that, he calls them a hardworking church, but also a faithful church. He says in verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. He says again later on that you've been bearing up patiently. The idea there is, the idea behind the word patience, it means to go through something very hard and trying and challenging and yet to come through it still standing. If this ain't abundant life, I don't know what is. Y'all have been through some things. I started to say we've been through some things. I can hear somebody saying we. You you just got here. Y'all... Forgive me, I was raised in Atlanta. Y'all, y'all been through some things. And by the way, I'm not here to shadow box with my predecessors. But you've been through some things. You've got some dings. Some scars. And yet if there's one word that I can think of when I think of abundant life, it is the word faithful. God's brought you through. You've endured. You've been patient. And God is doing something. You are faithful. But thirdly, he, he claps his hands and says, you're a hard-working church. You're a faithful church. But thirdly, you're a, you're a discerning church. He says in the middle of verse 2 that you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. In other words, he says to this church that you've had some leaders come through and they said some things about themselves and they said they were apostles, but you didn't co-sign right away. You had a discerning spirit. It was as if you were like the church at Berea, that you examined them, that you held up what they had to say through the lens of Scripture. And my prayer is, as we begin our journey together, that you would never take what I say as if it's God saying it, but would take what I say and measure it against the backdrop of the Word of God first. <laughs> Says you're a discerning... And, 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 and listen, I mean, I hope God can say this about us. Hardworking, faithful discerning. Then verse 4, but. (laughs) Ain't it just like Jesus to find something wrong? But. It's like taking your car to Jiffy Lube or someplace to get an oil change and, you know, you you think you're there just for a simple oil change and the man comes back and says, man, you know, everything looks good, but you need a new radiator. Or it's like going to the dentist and your mouth is feeling good and the dentist says, man, everything's looking wonderful, but you've got one cavity. This is what Jesus is doing here. Nine wonderful things, but. 
Well, you look at what he says in verse 4. He says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. The word abandoned is oftentimes translated forgive in your Bible. It's a word that simply means to release, to let go, to send away. And while that's good when it comes to grudges or offenses, it is horrible when it comes to Jesus. Jesus says, at some point you sent me away. At some point I dropped on the list of priorities in your life. Uh, Now this is a habit. This is a temptation that all of us have. In fact, if you'll just look with me briefly at Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Jesus in Jeremiah 2, 1 and 2, he's talking to the nation of Israel God is. And it says these words. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth. Your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. The implication is, you loved me when you were young in me. But now you done got grown. You've gotten sophisticated in your theology. You've gotten kind of so knowledgeable about Scripture. You've forgotten me. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 12, He says, And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. What Jesus is in essence is saying is, to be a follower of of Jesus Christ means that we we will battle with this whole law of thermodynamics. Or take Matthew 10, 37 to 38. Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Here he is. He's talking about good things. Love of father or mother. And yet here's Jesus saying in Matthew 10 that good things become bad things when they take my place. This is the lesson to the church at Ephesus. We're not talking to a church that, um, that is bought into evil. We're not talking to a church like the Corinthians that have given itself to immorality. We're not talking about a church that is not practicing church discipline. We are talking about a church that is doing good things. And yet Jesus says, I've got a problem with you because good things become bad things when they become ultimate things. You took serving with me. You took ministry. And at some point, you began to love doing ministry for me more than being with me. That's a problem. Jesus said... I did not purchase you so that now in turn I can become second. This is a word. Jesus wants to be first, and if he's not first, the whole thing is messed up. So I was sitting down with one of my kids a couple years ago, helping out with math, and uh, I went to Bible college to get out of math. Um, <laughs> praise God for apps, you know, <laughs> like there's an app for that. So my son is, um, he's in that section of math called order of operations. Anybody ever heard of order of operations? Order of operations. So he was in that section of math called order of operations. And order of operations, you know, you look at it, these are complex equations. There's stuff in parentheses. There are exponents. There's, uh, there's uh, addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. And, and what order of operations says is you just can't start any old place. You just can't jump in and start adding. You just can't jump in and decide, I'm going to multiply first, whatever. No, no, no. There's an order. And the law of order of operation says, you can get the math right, but if you get the sequence wrong, the whole thing is wrong. You know what Jesus is saying to the church of Ephesus? He's saying, you got the math right. You added wonderfully. You multiplied beautifully. But you got the sequence wrong. I wasn't first. I wasn't first. 
Friends, if Jesus ain't first, it's all messed up. Jesus says, verse 4, I have this against you. You have abandoned, let go, your first love. The implication is, you still love me, you just don't love me first. Now the question on the table is, what is first love? One word, passion. Think back to when you've been in love. Think real hard now. I told you, when I first met Sister Loritz, man, I was, I was in church, and Lord, I just, man, girlfriend got to me. I mean, I was sitting on the pulpit Sunday morning, saw her in a sea of thousands of people, man, and um, Lord have mercy. I had just had to get a chance to get to know her, and so that happened, and fell in love with her pretty quick. And if you know me, I'm an introvert. I'm an introvert who loves people, but the way God wired me is, is introvert. I love, my favorite punishment growing up was, go to your room. All right, introvert, introvert, introvert. And I would always feign, uh, oh, that's so horrible. Okay, I'll go to my room, all right? So <laughs> when I met my wife, I became an extrovert, right? Fell in love with her. I mean, I just had to always, I was always calling her. And when we got on the phone, we were talking for hours. Um, we, we were spending time with each other, and I would take her out to eat. But I was in seminary at the same time, which means I was poor. I didn't have much money. Um, and so when I was broke, um, we'd take long walks together. But I just had to be with her. And so when I wasn't on the phone with her, when I wasn't with her, I was thinking about her. This is first love stuff. When we get married, first love is happening for the first couple months. And then almost a year in, I'll never forget, Corey came to me, and she said this to me multiple times throughout marriage. She'll come to me and she'll say, we're off. She'll come and she'll say to me, we ain't clicking. And I remember the first time she said that to me, she said, uh, you know, me, just being a guy, I'll fix it. Right? Fix it. So, all right, I'll buy her flowers, you know, buy her a little CD or whatever. It may have been a cassette tape back then, 8-track, whatever it was. I'll buy her something. <laughs> and, I, and I remember that first time coming home with stuff, and she, she's saying, thank you, but that's not what I mean. We're not connected. And just buying me stuff isn't going to be the whole remedy to it. Jesus is telling us this morning the same thing my wife said to me. We're off. What happened to that woman I saved and the joy that filled your soul? Well, what, what, what happened to that young man that I saved on that college campus? I took you from death to life, man. And, and you were in your word. You were sharing your faith. You were excited about me. And it came not out of obligation, but out of delight. Jesus is saying, thank you for your duty. But I didn't die for your duty. It's important. I don't want just your actions. I want your heart. Amen. 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 Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. He's saying I'm not first. We've all been there. This is not me. I mean, this is we. We've all been there. So when we get off course... How do we get back? Look at verse 5. He tells us to do three things in verse 5 when we get off course. He says, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent. I love it. And do the works you did at first. He says, Brian, when you and I are off, and it will happen, I need you to remember repent and redo. As one scholar says, the journey back to first love, it begins with these three things. Remember, repent, and redo. He begins by calling us to remember. And look at what he says. He says in verse 5, remember from where you have fallen. In other words, 
Remember the time when all you had was me. Go back to those early days when it was just you and Jesus. You didn't know a whole lot of scripture. You didn't know what was appropriate in church to do, when to sit, when to stand. All you know was Jesus loves me, this I, this I know. All you know was the joy that filled Jesus. Go back to that. Go back to first things first. In Psalm 63, this is this point of remembering. Here is David in Psalm 63. His, his son Absalom has just removed him from his, his throne. So he's a fugitive. He's on the run. David in Psalm 63 has ended up in the wilderness, a dry place. And here he is in this dry place. And look at what he says. Psalm 63 verse 5. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Verse 6 is the punchline. When I remember, when I remember, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. That Hebrew word for remember, it literally means to smell. You do know there's a direct correlation between our sense of smell and our memory. Now, I need to turn in my man card here, okay? want you to know a little bit about me. I, I travel a lot, but when I'm home, um, there are times when my wife travels. And when my wife leaves me to go out on a girls weekend or something, I, I struggle with that. I mean, it's good that she goes, but I have a hard time when my girl's not home. I just have a hard time with it. Um, and so, again, about to give you my man card. Don't laugh at me. Um, but sometimes when she leaves, not sometimes, every time when she leaves, um, confession's good for the soul, I'll, um, I'll sleep on her side of the bed. Man card taken, I know. Now, don't laugh at me too hard, because every time I give this illustration, a group of guys will pull me to the side, uh, and will come to me like Nicodemus came to Jesus, and they'll be like, bro, I do that too. <laughs> Why do I sleep on her side of the bed? Because I want to smell her scent. And then there's times when she's gone, I've literally walked to her side of the closet. Not to try her clothes on, but... <laughs> there's been times I've actually... I, I, you know, I'm, I'm deep in it now. I just give you all my man card. There's times I've smelled her clothes. Why? Because when I get a whiff of her, I think about her. The Hebrew word for remember that, J- that uh, David uses in Psalm 63 <laughs> means to smell. Here he is in a dry place and he's going, God, if I can just get a whiff of you. Ever been in a dry place? Jesus is saying to the church at Ephesus, you are derailed. You have gone off track. Here you are at church doing ministry for me, but not walking with me. It's not born out of a love relationship with me. If you're going to get back on track, you need to go back. You're so sophisticated. I know you've got your PhD in theology. I know you've got all that wonderful stuff. But go back to those elementary faith days. Secondly, he says, not only do I want you to remember, I want you to repent. I don't need to linger long here. Last I checked, the only thing we repent of in the Bible is sin. Jesus says, if I'm not first, you need to repent because it's sin. If you love family more than me, it's sin. I, I, I love my boys. But my kids need to understand, they're not first. They ain't even second. Their mama's second. (laughs) My wife needs to know, she's not first. If my wife is first, and God forbid she dies first, what am I going to do when I'm looking at my Savior in my casket? Jesus, abundant life, as we begin this journey together, at the end of the day, sequentially, we must always come back to the source. Always come back. Always come back to Jesus. First. Finally, he says, remember, repent, redo. 
do what you did when all you had was me. Go back and do those early works of evangelizing. Go back to doing those early works when you would just sit in my presence. I, I remember, I was just even praying this morning when I got here. I just, uh, as my, my eyes started to just tear up, thanking God for this journey. Because it began for me, 18 years old, my dad drops me off at Bible college. He drops me off there in that at Burgundy Ford Aerostar that our family had. Took that thing to the junior prom. Long story. Drops me off, tears in his eyes. He tells me, son, obey God. Here I am. A thousand miles away from home, 25 minutes northeast of Philadelphia. It, the, the, pro, the very idea that I'm, I'm on my own now, 18 years of age, and, and, I, and I walk around the pond that first night away from home, and I cry out to the Lord. I just walked around for hours. God, if you can do anything with my life, would you just use me? Jesus says, go back to that. Go back to that. The problem with so many Christians is we're just too doggone sophisticated. Go back. What happens as we close? Jesus says, I make you a promise. He, made, he makes two promises to us as we close. If you keep me first. Look at what he says in verse 7. He says, if you keep me first... He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. The Greek word there for life is the word zoe. There's two Greek words for life. One is bios, from which we get the English word biology. It just speaks of life on a um, quantitative level. It simply means bios, inhale and exhale. He doesn't use bios here. He uses zoe. Zoe is a qualitative kind of life. That's where the church get, got its name from, this church. When Jesus says, I have come that you might have not bios, but zoe. The problem with so many people in our culture today is too many people have bios. They don't have zoe. They're existing, but they don't know the abundant kind of life that Jesus came for them to have. He says, if you keep me first, you will eat of the tree of life. The idea there of life, it simply means exuberance, happiness, joy. You will know real joy. A kind of joy that is said in, in Psalm 16 where the psalmist says, in your presence there is fullness, fullness, fullness of joy. One of the great tragedies of so many Christians is constantly we are trading in fullness of joy for temporary joy. Jesus says, if I'm first, you'll eat of the tree of life. But secondly, he says, which is in the paradise of God. What is paradise? Paradise, quite honestly, is the presence of God. Genesis begins in, in, in paradise where God creates Adam and Eve and they're walking with God and they're having communion with God and fellowshipping with God. In fact, we know this to be true because in Genesis chapter 3, after they sin, it says that when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking, they hid themselves. Well, how would you know that's God walking? There's so many things walking in the garden. There's giraffes, there's orangutans, there's elephants. How would you know just by sound that's God unless you had walked with him so much? We just know that in a giraffe, that's God because we've walked with Him. On the cross, Jesus says to one, of the, to one of the thieves, Today, today you will be with me in paradise, which means this, you will enjoy my presence. And the great thing about heaven is heaven will be paradise for 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. In fact, time won't even be a factor. We will enjoy the presence of God. And yet I believe Jesus is just not talking eschatologically. He says we can begin to experience that now. If you put me first, you will experience intimacy with me now. Amen. You will eat of the tree of life and the paradise of God. I want to invite the worship team to come up as we close and ready our hearts. One of my favorite stories is told of the time in which a wealthy man was dealing with his wife who had died of cancer. And not long after his wife dies, his, his beloved 10-year-old son tragically dies as well. 
he's reeling and losing his 10-year-old son and his beloved wife. And so to cope, according to the story, he begins to travel all over the world. And as he's traveling, this, this wealthy man begins to amass an art collection. He buys Rembrandts, and he buys Monets, and he buys Picassos. And before you know it, he has amassed one of the world's biggest private art collections. Well, then finally, this man dies. And it gets out that his whole art collection is going to go up for auction. And people from all over the world fly to his estate. They, they want an opportunity to get their hands on a Monet or on a Picasso. And they, they, they want these pieces, and so they show up. The auctioneer bangs his gavel and begins the auction. And they bring out a picture written, drawn by an artist, unknown. It's a picture of a little boy. Honestly, it didn't look like much. And the auctioneer says, we will begin this bidding at $20. No one bids. I mean, we ain't there here for this. We want Monet. We want Picasso. We want Van Gogh. We ain't never heard of this artist before. Don't know his name. It's 20 bucks. It looks like 20 bucks. And finally, after an awkward period of silence, an older man says, I'll take it. The auctioneer bangs his gavel and says, going once, going twice, sold to the elderly gentleman. And then he bangs his gavel again and says, this auction is now over. Everybody's in panda money. What do you mean it's over? We've flown from all over the world. What do you mean it's over? We've come here to get the Rembrandts, the Monets. He's got some real good stuff here. The auctioneer says, when this man died, he stipulated that the first piece to be sold was a portrait that he actually painted. And this person in this portrait is his son. And this man stipulated that whoever purchased the son got the rest of the collection. Because he who has the son has it all. Oh dear friends, Jesus is for our joy problem with you having nice things. He wants you to love your kids, love your family. He wants you to go on the vacations, the trips. Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. He just wants to be first. Because if you seek his kingdom and his righteousness, all these other things will be added to you.